1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: Hello and welcome to the Attack. The podcast that raises the curtain on the stage production of My Neighbor Totoro. I'm Michael Leader. Just me, this week we're currently in book tour mode, and at the moment Jake is in transit between Sussex and London following our screening of Millennium Actress in Lewis last night. So here I am to tee up what should be, fingers crossed, the first of a few interviews with the very talented people behind the stage production of My Neighbour Totoro that's currently on at the Barbican Centre in London. Today, Jake and I are talking to Basil Twist, who is behind the puppet creations we see in the show. Now, at the time that we were recording this chat, we hadn't seen the production, um, and they're still keeping a lot of the surprises of the production under wraps, so I'd say this chat is spoiler-free. But of course, if you've already booked your tickets and you want to go and see Totoro as unspoiled as possible, we won't judge you if you save this chat for later. Let's have some background for Basil before we dive in. Basil Twist is a third-generation puppeteer, originally from San Francisco. Since moving to New York over 23 years ago, he has garnered an international reputation as an audacious designer, director, and performer. Basil creates iconic, visionary puppetry worlds with a remarkable range of style and scope, appearing in intimate nightclubs to large orchestra halls. He is a sought-after collaborator for theatre, ballet, opera, dance, and film. His utterly unique approaches have been recognised with multiple awards and fellowships, critical acclaim, and have furthered contemporary artistry and the technical craft of puppetry. Basil is known for revitalising puppetry as a serious and sophisticated art form through his imaginative experiments with materials, techniques and uses in both narrative and abstract works, His shows range from productions of classic stories to abstract visualizations of orchestral music, and they're informed by puppetry traditions from around the world. Now, that's enough from me. Let's hear from Basil Twist. Real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Basil, thank you so much for joining us today. So, for context, we haven't yet seen the production, but when this episode goes out, people around, you know, people will have seen it. It would have been unveiled to the world. We can't wait to see what you've got in store for us. But I suppose for this conversation, we're talking about the process of designing and creating the puppets we're going to see. But, just, but to start with, I'd like to ask, um, what was your relationship with Studio Ghibli before this? Were they on your radar?
3: Of course they were. I wasn't, I mean, I've sort of fallen more down the rabbit hole. I, I, of course, knew Spirited Away and knew Totoro and Prince Onoke, but didn't know them them as well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I had, didn't, you know, now I've watched Totoro of course a million times. So, um, so I was aware of them as this, you know, spectacular entity in Japan and creative genius. Mm-hmm. But yes. I, but I didn't have a connection other than I'm a total Japanophile. So I love Japan. I love the all things Japanese. I love Japanese puppetry. i Spent time in Japan and and so I thought, yeah, that's cool. But I hadn't done the deep dive particularly on Totoro until I got involved in this project.
2: Oh, So, so what what's the history with Japan for you then? Where did that start? Was that something from when you were young or later in life?
3: Uh, it's, I mean, as a puppeteer, most, I would say generally, puppeteers around the world have immense reverence for the puppetry of Japan, particularly the Bunraku tradition which is a style of puppetry that's kind of developed in tandem with the kabuki. It's one of the great theatrical traditions of Japan along with kabuki and no. So Bunranku is like the most highly elevated and sophisticated and exquisite form of puppetry in the world, hands down. Um, and it's, it's a it's a, um, you know, a noble tradition. And so we all, as puppeteers, who generally feel kind of marginalized as artists, kind of bow down to the, um, you know, the immense heft of that tradition that exists in, 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 in the Bunraku, which is a specific theater um, in Japan. It's a specific troupe and it has influenced puppetry around the world. Um, the, the notable characteristics of Bunraku is that there are three puppeteers per puppet and that the puppeteers are visible. So like now we've all seen that in War Horse and in The Lion King, um, having puppeteers be visible in particular and um, um, and of course, having multiple puppeteers working together on a character. Um, but the Japanese were doing that hundreds of years ago. So um, and, and they still maintain that craft and that um, uh, sort of apprenticeship and, and training, which is decades long to become a master puppeteer. So, um, so that's the initial kind of real deep connection with Japan, that respect for that puppetry tradition. And then um, I studied other puppetry traditions there um, and went to Japan and created a show. But actually I brought here to the Barbican in the smaller theater in the pit with the uh, London International Mime Festival um in 2015 I think um it was called Dogu Gayashi and it's a, a homage to a certain Japanese puppetry technique that involves sliding screen doors um so it's a whole show of sliding screen doors um and I just I went to Japan to study that and I just loved 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 being there and love I'm just desperate to go back whenever I can i it's been, I've been a couple of times and I want to go again. So,
1: yeah, I love Japan
3: and it's amazing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're speaking the language of, of our listeners there, I'm sure. Um, and so from a more cinephile point of view, you said it was just a handful of uh, Ghibli films that you knew prior going into this. Getting up to this point in your career and the the early stages of your career when you're discovering who you are as an artist, what would you say are the the key films, key texts that were shaping your voice? In you mean not just the Ghibli films, but yeah, the other yeah, films? yeah, absolutely. Sorry,
3: this speaker will keep coming on. I don't know how to turn it off. Sorry. Um, well, I, I'm a I'm also a Disney head. I mean, I was very influenced by Disney as a kid, so I love I love animation. You know, when I was. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an animator. Animation, you know, is a animation is actually the same spirit. Film animation and live puppetry animation is the same. um, It's kind of the same essential, uh, you know, phenomenon where you're bringing something to life and that we believe in something because we suggest something. Uh, My my training as a puppeteer, I was trained in France. So up in California, I was trained in France in a school that was a response to the Eastern European puppetry training traditions, which frequently combined live puppetry and stop motion animation. They they kind of were on a similar track. They existed within the same schools. So, I don't know. Animation already was something that inspired me. And as a kid, I wanted to be an animator. I kind of flip-flopped between wanting to be an animator and a puppeteer. And I was, as an American, I loved Disney and I loved the Muppets. Those are my two (laughs) things. They just, that that was where I lived and loved things as a kid. Um, So, so there you go. That's I mean, the anim- from an animation point of view, I mean, it's a very simple thing. It was a Disney. I love Disney,
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: and then, and then I, I later fell into the Muppets and became obsessed with puppetry. Although puppetry is already in my family, um, my uh, my mother was a puppeteer when I was a kid, and my grandfather um, was a musician. He was a big band leader in the thirties and forties, but he used puppets as part of his act. So I have a kind of a puppetry in my blood somehow. So it makes sense that I've ended up where I am.
2: Hmm. And so to get specific with, um, the Totoro project for a second. So how do you start with a gig like this? What's the first step and, um, did you have any sort of personal aims or principles that you came to this project with that you wanted to achieve?
3: Um, well, Let's see. I mean, I was so I was working with the the creative team of of Phelan McDermott, the director, and Tom Pye, the production designer. So we were working on an opera together. I we were doing a production of Aida, and that started at the at the English National Opera. I was working on that production in terms of I was animating silk. So I'm also. I, I use Silk, I approach Silk as a, as a medium. I approach it as a puppeteer, bringing it to life. Um, so I was, I was the Silk choreographer on that show, as I have done on a few other UK shows actually. Um, and, uh, and they had been invited to do Totoro. And since I had was part of their team, it was kind of obvious they needed somebody like me to help realize the creatures, so um, and the title character, of course. So um, I guess my first, you know, thing was to sit down with them and imagine, you know, watch the film as the reference, understand w- w- what we wanted to convey in the film. How do you translate a film, an animated film, to a live stage experience? And the film is actually very, when you study it, it's very uh point of view like it's very subjective from the child's point of view like it's from May, the younger the daughter's point of view first and then it moves to Satsuki's point of view and it's um so it's really from their point of view which is uh, in the film look at the film Todoro himself actually kind of changes shape and size and scale depending on how close she is to him what her experiences is of him so it's really trying to recreate that sense of the experience of him um, as experienced by a child. And and what and 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 how how you do that on stage and how you create a large creature without having it be like a guy walking around in a suit, but actually really having it be as you know. Thrilling and majestic as it should be when you discover a giant forest spirit. Um, and I don't know, to play around with some concepts around that, using some of the stuff I'd done before, um, as I said, I used fabric and and um, a lot. So it was like, that was a natural place for me to start and, and to work with my, you know, co-collaborators to see, is this right? Is this what you're thinking? And, and then also to represent that to our Japanese partners who of course were most concerned about how the characters are gonna be represented. Um, and I just, you know, you just have to start somewhere making a prototype, I always start with prototypes with really humble materials to give the idea, to give a sense of, of scale and the basic functionality of things. So you make stuff out of cardboard and fabric and tape and um, and people can kind of squint and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the right idea. Um, and that was all, of course, complicated by almost, you know, we started this process in January 2020. So we were meant to have a, I was about to come to the UK to be, do our first puppetry workshop and then the pandemic hit and we were all shut down. But we continued... Zooming and talking, and the and our Japanese partners, I actually, like a lot of people, during the pandemic, I, I'm mostly based in New York, but I, like a lot of people, I moved back in with my parents in San Francisco, which is where I grew up. So I spent a year in San Francisco, and I was working, you know, the I, I was exactly between the UK and... Japan, so we were eight hours in either direction in terms of time zones. Of course, I was always getting the short end of the stick and I was the guy in the middle of the night on the Zoom calls, but they really wanted to, the the Japanese wanted to see how is, how are we gonna do these characters? How are they gonna be represented? So I had to start to make mock-ups in within these limited circumstances of really full lockdown, but I did it in California in, my, in the backyard at my parents' house and using my, um, my siblings and their kids as, uh, as my puppeteers to represent that. And that's a really fun um, footage that i made and sent you know, to the Japanese to get their approval. And eventually we got to a place where we wanted to you know, gather in the UK to work. I needed to quarantine for two weeks to do that. Um, and the miracle also was that the stage of the Barbican, as there was no programming in the Barbican, no audiences were gathering, but the stage was empty. So we actually were able to work on stage and have um, a developmental workshop on stage. And I think there's some footage of that and some promotional material where we're all wearing masks and we're trying to work socially distanced and puppeteering. And, um, you know, this idea of like, puppeteering multiple puppeteers together on one thing and that being, you know, not exactly COVID safe um, was super challenging. Um, But what was amazing was I used those kind of really simple things that I had made in California and and we sent them here. And then we actually were working on stage at the Barbican. So working not only rehearsing, but also building, we kind of turned the stage into a workshop so that we kept building, again, in really humble materials, kind of sheets of plastic and fabric and cardboard, just to get the shape of things. Like, what is the cat bus going to be like? What is Totoro, how does Totoro, when he's at the bus stop and he jumps in the air, how do you do that? How are we going to do that? And how does that feel in this space? And that was an immense privilege, actually, to be able to do that with the, I, if it weren't for the pandemic, I would not have been able, I'm sure, to work in my parents' backyard to develop this with my family and to work on stage at the Barbican in the actual venue where the show is being created for to try out some of the ideas in a really experimental way. Um, That was seriously, you know, there are solar lightings all over this experience of the past years. And those were two of them in this process. And since the process is so tied chronologically with the pandemic, it's really extraordinary to be getting to, you know, our the premiere.
2: Mm. Yeah, it must be so special and meaningful when you finally get there. This chunk of your life finally realized. I'm, I'm interested. You meant you talk about these uh, humble materials and humble sort of crafting practices. We've just done a mini series on stop motion animation, and in the last thirty, as you said. Uh, you go back to the mid 20th century, there's some crossover there in the practice, but in the last 30 years of mainstream American stop motion, the whole process has been revolutionized by 3d printing and other uh, processes that get further and further away from the hand craftedness. But is that hand craftedness still something that you're, you're very interested in?
3: Oh my God. Yes, totally. That's where I'm, that's what it's about for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a couple things that have been three D printed. It's nice. It's an amazing tool, but um, but the 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 craft of creating puppets and bringing them to life is 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 very 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 human and very very analog and very old world, and uh, I think it's part of why people responds to it so strongly because we're so third we're kind of even more and more thirsty for that and puppetry speaks to a very simple magic that's very profound and it's innate in human beings pre-technology and uh so yes absolutely we are <laughs> we we are very um very uh, uh craft hands oriented human analog solutions that's that's the way that we go that's part of why I work in live theater and not film I need that immediacy of that feeling of bringing something to life
1: um, and and experiencing it that's that's really interesting you mentioned about not working in film because Obviously, this, this is a film adaptation and thinking of your you've got your two sides that you're working in between between your Japanese partners and your stage directors in the UK. Can you talk about the process of not just trying to adapt something from a film onto stage, but making it its own unique thing as well? Because I'm sure you're torn in lots of directions as to how similar something needs to be, how different it needs to be how abstracted it needs to be to deliver both something that is representative of the thing that is so beloved, but also its own original version as well. It's a
3: it's a multi-layered thing because I, I use the film, of course, as the original inspiration. So I, you know, I'm speaking to you on an iPad. I have the film on my iPad. I look at it all the time to see how is the cat bus's head in relationship to its front legs? What, 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 what did Ghibli decide to do there? So I used that as my reference. How where, how far apart are Totoro's ears in this scene? Um, so I used the film as my reference, but then eventually you, you get to a place where you hopefully create some magnificent puppets. And part of what you're doing too, as I was saying, is you're trying to recreate point of view in a film. So an experience that probably that a child would have and how do you recreate that for an audience? How do you have the audience, if you can't keep changing camera angle, if you're looking from a fixed point, how do you represent the essentials of this is now May's moment. This is how the, 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 the four-year-old sister may, how is she experiencing this? How do you create that for the whole audience to be with her? And, um, and you know, that has to do in choices of materials and scale and, and what do you show and what do you not show? Because there's always a point at which people will fill in the gaps too. That's part of what puppetry does, is that there's you're referencing an idea. A great example is Warhorse. Warhorse, the, the incredible puppets of Warhorse. They were beautifully executed. Their movement the movement was great, but they weren't real horses. They were the idea of a horse. And the idea of a horse is more powerful than a real horse, actually. It's more, it's stronger for human beings, what our ideas. So, so the idea of Totoro, especially for fans, is so strong. If you even if you approach it, if you get close to it, people fill in a lot of gaps. People fill in, they they imagine into it. It's part of the collaboration with the audience and it's particularly true for something that exists already that people know and love there's a danger also that people know and love it so much that they're like hey those ears are too far apart or they're too close (laughs) together not doing the right thing but there's also the thing that people have in their mind that they can project into it so if you get close if you get if you suggest totoro the suggestion of Totoro enough is to bring the spirit of Totoro into the entire experience of the audience. Um, that's, the, that's the nature of puppetry. It always is, is that people, f- there's a collaborative element with the audience where people are basically filling in the gaps. They're, they're not just suspending their disbelief, they're believing in something. Um, and, and they're believing in an informed way if it's a character that they know and love already.
2: I find it interesting, Basil, you mentioned the idea of Totoro there in the minds of the audience coming to the production after seeing the film. Of course, there is also the idea of Totoro in the eyes of your Japanese collaborators. Um, So what sort of, what was that collaboration like? What sort of feedback were you getting from them? What concerns did they have about the representation of this character in this form?
3: Um, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. I mean, they, I was, I guess, pleased that my first volley to them was well-received. Mm. So, um, you know, our, our primary collaborator is actually, is Joe Hasaishi. It's so the composer. So he's our, he's our, he's one of the co-producers and he's our main connection with, with, and um, and there's a, um, a Japanese way of a kind of hierarchy of how you go through people eventually to get to Joe. So you have to sort of deal with his his team who then gets to him. I mean, it's not just Japanese, it's everywhere, but it's particularly Japanese, so it takes a while. But when we got to Joe, he was pleased with the initial offering. I think that they had had experience before that they were concerned about. One is they're worried that it not look like some guy in a suit that would be like at an amusement park. Um, I think they were also concerned there has been attempts at doing Ghibli productions and they have used a lot of video. So like a stage show that uses a lot of video feels like a... Uh, it's not a film, but it's not a stage product. It's kind of like, so they really didn't want that. So they actually, I think they were very um, pleased with what I first presented. And um, and there's, um, you know, as happens with puppetry, you kind of need to create different puppets for different applications sometimes. So, um, so there's sort of multiple suggestions of how the characters are represented and, um, And I don't know, they were really positive and responsive. I think they maybe had low expectations because they thought, you know, they just didn't want a bad video thing or a guy walking around in a suit. And it wasn't that. Um, And then, you know, as you get into it, of course there's a little bit, they're like, Oh, maybe the eyes are too far apart or something, you know, they have those kind of things where at some point, you know, we, I, I, that's really valuable feedback. And then there's also, there's a place at which we're doing this here in our way, and there, cake maker movies. We're taking, we're inspired by, and we're doing it the way that we, in our medium, in live theater, and in in a you know Western trained puppetry sense. Can what can we bring to it to this idea? So in general, it's been, I mean, fabulous. They're really, they've been. Um, positive and responsive and, um, and also, you know, respectfully, you know, and I think it was that first kind of volley that happened, as I said, when I was in California working, you know, in my parents' backyard, that they were like, oh, cool. This is great. This is going in the right direction. This is interesting. This is, this is fresh. This is, this is cool. And then they'd let us do our, you know, we we when we would do these workshops that we had at the Barbican, they would zoom in. So they they're part of the process. And they came, uh uh some came, not not, not, not Johisashi, but some of the team came, his team came to our rehearsal period in Stratford and saw us working. So um I think everything's been pretty cool. I mean, it's a big project and it's still, you know, challenging. But <laughs> um, but I, I, I know we're on the right path. Been no, on it for a while.
2: Th- this is the hard part for, uh, for asking a question like this when we haven't seen the production yet. But is there a moment in the production that was either particularly challenging or that you're now particularly proud of realising? Admi- as Also, you are currently rehearsing, of course. So, <laughs> so there's, there's an element there of casting a- ahead a couple of weeks. But already in the design and the creation of, of, of the puppets, is there a particular one that you're proud of?
3: Um, God, I don't know. I try and be proud of all of them and they all still have their kinks to work out. But I, I feel pretty great about the reveal of Totoro when we meet him the first time. So when Mei mm-hmm. encounters him sleeping and and is on his belly um i uh i think it's i think it's pretty cool because
2: i suppose that is that that is the moment isn't it that yeah almost makes or breaks the 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 magic in a way that that needs to be the part that sells it
3: yeah i mean the other one is at the bus stop when he's waiting and he has his umbrella he jumps in the air that's also um there's a thing where you do it, you originally do it, and you do it in humble materials, and then you have to actually realize it and how it changes along the way, and how you have to accommodate those changes. of different materials that might be heavier or more robust, but then they lose something else. So how do you maintain that? How do you stay with the freshness of the original idea and keep those things in both of those ideas? Those, you know, Toto actually makes it, it does not make. He's not in the show a lot their very brief appearances is the same in the film. You know, you almost get through half the film and he hasn't appeared yet. So, and those scenes are not, they're they are essentially wordless too, you know? So as you, the, they, they just, and he also doesn't do a lot. Like he's sleeping a lot or he's just standing there, you know? So how to make those things really um, radiate a lot of, Energy of character of soul, um, with you know, with just a, a a big furry guy who's just standing at a bus stop. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, they're pretty cool. It was, of course, for me also as a puppeteer. I'm, I, you know, and as as I referred to as the, you know, young kid in the states i was obsessed with the muppets so i've been really fortunate to work with the jim henson company a couple of times and this was a great opportunity to work with them again and and everybody um especially the japanese were really excited to, to bring those partners in and it was great for me also of course because of the international collaboration but during an international pandemic to be able to work in the states and to be able to work with an, a, a you know a company with a, a a legacy that's respected around the world um and 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 they do great work it's beautiful so it's Mm. wonderful to have that um that you know that soulfulness within the puppets um Mm. that comes from working with the jim henson company
2: and through that process of watching the film a thousand times and almost reverse engineering the characters to work in this more abstracted, live atmosphere. Do you have any insights into why Totoro has been such a magical, enduring character for successive generations?
3: You know, it, it, it's, I'll say that in particular, working, uh, I watched the show with, I should watch the film, sorry, I watched the film with my, um, with children. So with my sister's children. I don't have kids, but my siblings do. So during the pandemic, I watched Totoro. With my sister's two daughters. And they're they're a little bit older. They were uh, I guess seven and nine. So they were um slightly older than the characters on stage, or at least older than May, but they were young girls. And they went nuts about total. I was like kind of shocked at how they wanted to watch it again and again and again. I it it actually really struck me. I was sort of confused by it. And I think it's because it really is, I saw more and more, how much it is from a child's point of view. That the the drama that there is, which there's very actually, you know, it's said frequently about Twitter and not much happens in it. But there's so much that happens in their in in May's experience. Of her mother and her is the mother gonna be okay and bring her to corn and she get lost? And all this stuff is like it's so epic. So it's from the point of view of a child, of a of a little girl that is so successfully captured in the film that it really resonates for a kid. Um, and uh, I guess I saw that especially when I watched it with kids, um, because as an adult, I watched it and I go. That's a strange movie. It's so it's sort of strange. It's got it's kind of wistful and and slow. It's so it's kind of odd. There's all these moments where there's just a toad crossing the road in the rain, and um, and those are things that you you can't you cannot replicate on stage. You can't replicate that sense of time too. There's also a, a different having. Engaged with Japanese art forms enough, I know that already. There's a different sense of time that's represented on stage that a Western audience won't, well, really won't accept. Um, but but how to bring that kind of soulfulness in and that sense of presence? I think Phelim, our director, is the right person for that, mm-hmm. and um, and he's really created a. a a really extraordinary cohesion in the ensemble here that's ready for that. you know bringing all of that soulfulness is the word i keep that keeps coming up it's just that that's within every scene if it's in a puppet if it's in just the stillness of the scene if it's in just the, the 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 tiny emotions that become epic for a child um He's he's really great at that. And um, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering a <laughs> question that is babbling, but...
2: That's the perfect answer to the question. I, I know you, you, you need to make tracks, but we do have one final question that we ask all our guests and... Jake, I'll let you ask it this time.
1: Yeah, well, so over the course of the podcast, we've looked at all of Studio Ghibli's films. We ran out of those. And then we watched all of Satoshi Kon's films. And then we've done Cartoon Saloon and Henry Selleck and Leica, and all of these filmmakers. And we're always looking for new directions to go in, whether that's in live action, animation, stop motion, 2D, 3D, whatever it might be. So where do you think... As a podcast, we could look to next. Who's got an interesting story to tell? Whose films or series should we be looking
2: at?
3: In in animation specifically or?
1: Whatever. It could be anything.
2: I suppose the question is, would you think that Jim Henson's TV and feature film work would be worth exploring in this way?
3: I think that Jim Henson, I mean, that was my natural thing, is that Jim Henson's work, I mean, particularly uh-huh. off the charts, is The Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal was so it was so radical that people couldn't even really receive it because it came out of, also it came out of, you know, he was making the most, it was the most popular television show in the world, the Muppet show. And he stopped doing that. So he could make this fantasy film that existed pre-computer digital arts. It's all completely analog and there's not a single human appears in it. It, that film is um, is, is so seminal to Jim Henson's legacy and the kind of the legacy of creatures in film and creating worlds. Um, the, the recent reboot that happened on Netflix, the, the, the success of that, um, and I don't think it was as successful. It obviously did not, there was response was not enough for them to repeat (laughs) to to do their season, but they, but that they recreated that universe to create an entire universe and to do it essentially with, with non-digital means is, um, is so, um, I have so much respect for it, for the labor and the love and the passion it takes to do that. Um, That's, Yeah, I'm so proud to be um, working with the Creature Shop, which created the Totoro creatures. um, Was born of the Dark Crystal. That 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 was how that initiative started. Was creating, you know, creatures for films, semi-realistic creatures, not just the um, very the you know stylized characters of the Muppet Show, but things that were more um, had more. more, Mm realism to them even though they were f- fantasy um the dark crystal labyrinth um and the storyteller all those those late things of jim henson's are really extraordinary and i'm i'm proud to be connected with the creature shop that was born from those
1: perfect i i, I would love to go and do a jim henson series that'd be so much fun no you should
2: well, Basil, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, we can't wait to see the production, uh, but congratulations for all your work so far.
3: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much, Basil.
2: Thank you to Basil Twist for joining us today to give us such insight into the process behind the My Neighbour Totoro stage production. What a great chat that was, talking about that crossover between stop motion, puppetry, film and theatre. I really think that's music to our ears uh, considering the mini-series that we've had throughout this year. Thanks to to Bethany at the Royal Shakespeare Company for helping us set up this interview. Now we hope to be back later with more insights into the show and also with our own review. Of my neighbour Totoro. When we do that, we'd love to include a special reader mailbag section. So please send in your reactions to the show if or when you see it to gibliotech at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Gibliotech and Gibliotech.pod. That's where you can find information about our ongoing screenings tour in support of the anime movie guide, which when this episode goes out should be imminently on shelves in the UK. You could also keep up with us individually on Twitter. Jake is at Jake H. Cunningham. Steph is underscore Steph Watts. And I am Michael J. Leader.
0: Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShield and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng.